This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is my great pleasure to be the host for the event that's about the clash. And it's even uh, a greater pleasure to introduce Mark Anderson and Ralph uh, Hybutsky. Uh, Mark is a punk rock community activist and author who lives in Washington, D.C. As a, as a longtime believer in the power of people, the magic of the arts, and the sacredness of life, he has worked to build a better world for decades. He's the author of two books, Dance of Days, Two Decades of Punk in the Nation's Capital, and All the Power, Revolution Without Illusion. He's also a contributor to several uh, other books. Uh, Ralph was born and raised in Southwest Michigan and has been writing since he was old enough to put, uh, to put pen, pen to paper. The collision of music and culture has been a crucial interest uh, from his preteen years and it remains a major motivation for any project he takes on today. He's the author of Unfinished Business, The Life and Times of Danny Gutton. Uh, we Are the Clash, Reagan, Thatcher, and The Last Stand of Abandoned Matter is the book they collaborated on, and it's the reason we are all here tonight. Uh, we Are the Clash tells a complex story of a band that was a key player in the original wave of British punk rock. It is a thoroughly researched account of the band's last years, their struggle to stay true to their ideals, and the political climate in the both uh, UK and US with the rise of uh, right-wing power. It's a biography of the only bad band that matters, as much as a political history of the late 70s and early 80s. Anderson and Haibutsky remind us that the greatness of the clash lay in their willingness to push the envelope on all levels, and that their music and their message together made them a band that truly mattered. So uh, without further ado, let's rock the Kasbah, and please help me in welcoming Mark Anderson and Ralph Haibutsky to Politics and Prose. My name is Mark, and I'm stepping on my co-author. And that's just how it is. Yeah. It's always fun being co-authors, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. So we're here to talk about history, right? Right. I am here to tell you that history only matters in how it connects to right now. And there's a lot to talk about right now. I'm sure we'll get to it. But first... What we're going to do is I'm going to read you a little bit from the book. Um, then Ralph is going to talk a little bit about how he came to do the first uh, in-depth research on this period of the clash and then how we came to work together. And then I'll share a little bit on my perspective from you know my own experience. And then we're going to have a conversation with you. Does that seem reasonable? It is indeed in the spirit of the clash. Because one of the things that, uh, that I already knew but came through in doing this book is how important the audience was to The Clash. And that is truly the meaning of We Are The Clash, the title of our book. Now, there's a lot of meanings to it, but that is the most important. The air was sweat-soaked and electric. Five musicians could be barely glimpsed amidst a mass of humanity. Three men flayed acoustic guitars, while a fourth pounded drumsticks against the metal and plastic of a chair. The fifth, a flamed-haired singer in a green t-shirt with rolled-up sleeves, exhorted the crowd from a slightly elevated perch. Dog tags jangled as he sang without a microphone. His head nearly touching the low ceiling of the cave-like space. The vocalist provided a visual center to the happening, but his voice was lost in the din. The unamplified guitars were similarly submerged with only the rhythm cutting through to the back of the small room. Such technological shortcomings seem to matter little. Hundreds of voices howled as one, breaking rocks in the hot sun. I fought the law and the law won. I needed money because I had none. I fought the law and the law won. The song echoed poverty's desperation. 
its doomed protagonist reduced to robbing people with a six-gun. If evoking a mythical American West, its theme also fit with the present locale, Sunderland, a port city in northeastern Great Britain. Once Sunderland had been the largest shipbuilding town in the world, according to the BBC. Now the ships were gone. Factory gates padlocked and rusty, with the area also hemorrhaging mining and other industrial jobs. A battle waged over the past two years to forestall an even bleaker future had not ended in victory. Yet if the lyrics were grim, the spirit in the drum club discotheque on this evening in May 1985 was anything but. Joy met defiance as crowd and band became one giant chorus spitting in the face of a cruel fate. We may have lost, the voices seemed to say, but we are not defeated. Bravo, I have to stand up a bit now after an introduction like that. <laughs> so as far as my aspect goes, I started off, like everybody starts off, this of course being the pre-internet era, mind you. So buying the magazines, getting these clippings, keeping them carefully, lovingly compiled on a shelf. Anybody remember that? <laughs> remember what that was like? You do what I did, you'd put them on your shelf at home and you'd periodically take them out and scan them like so many Egyptian hieroglyphics. The way they wrote sometimes, it might as well have been hieroglyphics, but that's another story. Of course, bit by bit, then these turned into scrapbooks. And in terms of The Clash, of course, I liked them before I actually ever heard them. <laughs> Seriously. But then reading the coverage in Time Magazine and places like that, that encouraged me to get the records. And of course, the more clippings I collected, the more curious I got. Well, who are these people behind this message? Who were these actual artists who were telling us about this world that was going up in flames? And so, bit by bit, of course, when I got old enough to go to shows, this was my one and only time seeing the only band that matters. Thursday, May 10th, 1984, Michigan State University, the aging MSU Auditorium, a place no band was ever particularly enthusiastic about playing, I might add. And for those who know the history, this was the gig where the money got taken. Cream had a little item about it in their random notes the next issue or two, and of course they had to jive, as many people did at the band during this time, <laughs> Don't worry, Joe, we're sure it's going to some acceptable revolutionary cause. <laughs> then, of course, comes out that article, which is in our book, of course. They want to spoil the party, so they'll stay in Cream Magazine. And they said a lot of negative things. And I did what any self-respecting fan did. I called Cream headquarters. <laughs> I called them and said, you know, is Bill Holchip there? I want to have a word with him. <laughs> That's the writer of the article. Yeah. living infamy. No, yes. He's a nice guy. <laughs> but I said, I want a word with this guy now. And he came to the phone. Lo and behold, and we had a free-flowing conversation slash discussion argument for 45 minutes. So after all that, of course, the buildup begins. It continues. I start to write a bit more professionally. And of course, when I get a bit older... What's the next thing that happens? I'm writing retrospective articles for the likes of Goldmine Discoveries, and that's where I, of course, wrote these mega massive articles about the clash. And of course, I couldn't just leave it at that. I had to go to England because that's where it all began, right? And that's where I started meeting some of the actual players in what we call Clash World or the Clash franchise, as some of the more sarcastic among the critics like to call it. And so that's when I got the idea, well, you know, it'd be really interesting to write about to put it between two covers. So bit by bit, that momentum builds. But there was only one problem with that idea. I couldn't get anybody to pick up on it at the time. 
everybody had that idea. Ah, the clash, great history lesson, had its time, it's come and gone. The emphasis is on what's new, not the past, even if it was the more recent past, mind you. And so I would periodically come back and I'd try to stoke the fires. Oh, let's contact this company, let's contact this agent, let's talk to this person. But none of that really was coming to fruition. And that is where Mark comes into the picture, and that is where we start actually working together. So I'll let Mark describe a little bit of how that came to be. And I will be glad to do that very thing. Because the thing that Ralph, Ralph is being very modest, because you are here listening to us about a clash book, which is, you know, there's quite a few clash books out there, aren't there? Right? Quite a few. I own almost all of them. <laughs> some of them are pretty dire. Clearly, somebody needed to make some money, and they managed to hoodwink somebody into paying them an advance. Now, we were not that clever. <laughs> no. We had to work for our advance, this Kickstarter thing, but we're getting ahead of our story. If you were to listen to Rolling Stone magazine, which I advise you to generally not, in matters of punk rock at least, um, you would hear that the clash ended at the Us Festival, because that was the last show that Mick Jones played. And the last two years of the band, 120 shows, a record that, yes, is very controversial. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, it doesn't matter. It's not really the clash. I think that you're here... Well, maybe you're here because you're a relative of mine and you're like, it'd be embarrassing if I didn't come. <laughs> Ralph's relatives are off the hook. They're on Michigan. <laughs> so, but my relatives are here. Um, so I apologize if you've been brought here by peer pressure or family, family togetherness. I would love uh, to have stuffed mine in a van. Next time. Next time. <laughs> so um, the thing is that Ralph and I do not believe Rolling Stone. And we did not believe them because we actually experienced that time. We're talking about Mick Jones is fired in September of 1983. And then we both found out that this new version of The Clash that was created ended. We, it actually ended in late 85, but we've heard about it in early 86. And even though the critics generally, not all of them, dismissed this, and in fact, The Clash themselves don't, Hardly acknowledge it. If you, anybody here owns Sound System? The, this, it's a wonderful box set. If you're into box sets, it's a good one to get. Okay, you don't own it. Well, it's, it's the definitive document of The Clash. It's the last thing they put out. It's, it's made up like a, a ghetto blaster. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite a, well, it's both an artistic beauty and it's a, quite a conspicuous consumption. <laughs> item. So, um, I own it. <laughs> I own it. <laughs> I think my wife got it for me <laughs> after I begged and pleaded for a long time. Y this history, the history that's in our book is entirely wiped from that. And why? Good question. We can talk about it here tonight. But the thing is that when this was happening, this, this kind of historical uh, erasure worthy of Joseph Stalin, Ralph and I remembered how it touched us. And it seemed like something was being lost, something worth keeping. Because, you know, this is actually the, the great thing about history. Because there's so much stuff that happens. And if you look at, like, the cover of, you know, say, People magazine or, you know, any number of other periodicals, you would get one version of history. But there's things happening that don't make those covers, which are actually so tremendously important. For us, these two years are that important. For me, I was... What's the word? I was a hunk in midlife crisis, which meant I had reached 25. <laughs> and I was wondering, you know, is punk? I mean, is that something you're supposed to leave back there? 
You know, I was a radical activist at college, but then I, in Montana, I grew up in Montana. I bought, if anybody wants to know my punk bona fides, I bought Patti Smith horses at Garrick's Records and Tapes in 1975 in Plentywood, Montana. <laughs> That's how punk I am. Of course, I had long hair and bell bottoms. I actually had bell bottoms into the 1980s. It's crazy. What kind of a weird punk rocker am I? But the point, back to the point. <sighs> this period of the clash is where Strummer and Simonon end. The person that a lot of people don't know, who some people dismiss as just kind of a money-hungry manager, but who is actually not, is he's a, he's a pain in the ass, for sure. Bernard Rhodes... But he's a co-founder of The Clash. He's really like another member of The Clash. He's the guy with the vision behind it in the first place. They, those three, decided that something was going wrong and they needed to set it right. And they kicked out, yes, the authors of two and a half of their three hit singles. Now, is that crazy or what? I mean, they're supposed to be a rock band. You want to be popular, right? Money. Girls or boys, depending. <laughs> fame but they apparently wanted something more than that which is of course what what the clash promised you know that's what they promised that's why it still matters to people now and so these two years actually changed my life because i came here to go to a fancy school and kind of leave punk rock behind and when joe strummer started talking about how the clash had lost their way yeah, they were in the top 10. Yeah, they were one of the most popular bands in the world, but it didn't feel right. They, they wanted to get back to what was real. It touched me way back there in 1984 in Montana at this time, before I moved here, right before I moved to go to fancy school here. Um, and so when the Sound System box set came out, it, it kind of crystallized my desire to make sure that this period wasn't lost. Um, and it, I found out that someone else was already hot on the trail. Actually, somebody had been on that trail. And that was Ralph. And so being, a, you know, kind of a bold, perhaps presumptuous punk rocker, I just called up this guy I'd never met and said, hey, you want to write a book together? <laughs> You were a little skeptical. Yes, I was. <laughs> then he got to know me, and he was even more skeptical. <laughs> but uh, but it was a, it was a beautiful accident. Um, and what was powerful for me was not only that we were able to go and talk to these people. Ralph had actually talked to most of these people already. I actually had interviewed um, Joe Strummer back in 1989, but um, Ralph had interviewed pretty much all the other key people um, in the in the 90s before I was on the trail but we had been some sense then kind of working on this book ever since we heard that this new improved version of the clash had suddenly for no explicable reason disbanded um, and so we came together with a wonderful punk rock independent publisher Akashic books to try to recapture some of this history not only because we're fans of The Clash, and we're like, oh my God, God has got to save the history of The Clash, right? No, because what was, what was so great about The Clash? Was it just music? No, it was, it was everything. It was everything. Um, and so when we went back to look at The Clash, it became clear that you had to look at what was happening around them what was happening in the world. And what we discovered was something astonishing, that this very moment where these key things happened for this particular band that meant so much to us was a moment when the world turned. And maybe not in a great direction. I don't know how you feel about it right now, but I kind of had hoped for something a little different than back there in the 1980s as a spunky young uh, neophyte activist. Um, and so... Um, while we're telling the story of the Clash, we're hopefully not only doing that, but telling the story of their time. And in the process, doing what all history must do, which is to give us some lesson for how we might live now. You know, give us some inspiration to have the courage to try to 
to try to live out, you know, the visions we still have, no matter what crazy shit is happening. And crazy shit is happening all the time. I'm someone, I grew up in the Vietnam War. I was a kid. I supported the Vietnam War, by the way, as a 10-year-old. <laughs> I debated in favor of in my sixth grade class. I went around and actually did a little survey afterwards, and my survey showed that I won the debate. <laughs> now, I was in Merle Haggard country anyway, so I probably would have won it anyway. But, uh, but uh, you know, I've been through a lot, through, through Vietnam, through Watergate, through Reagan, through the invasion of Iraq. Now is scary. Now is very scary. Um, and our belief is, and our hope, is that what you find in the pages of the book and what we'll commune around tonight has immense relevance to this very dangerous but also possibility-filled moment right now, right here, right now. Or I could say one more piece. Go for it. <laughs> Just to kind of, yes, to piggyback off your point, Mark, there are many things that there are many of the things that we tell in the book that we hope will kind of give people some inspiration, as, as you said, to how things should be done now. And certainly from even from the socio-musical standpoint, that's why I always said the busking tour, that whole crazy two-week excursion that they undertook, Northern England and Scotland, just showing up and playing for whoever wanted to hear. Admission prices aren't even that's a being picture asked. From the busking tour. They're they're going down the middle of a street in York. In northern England, those are the fans falling behind. There's like about a hundred of them following the clash down the street as they're marching towards their next show, an impromptu show at a college. What year is that? 1985. May of 85. May Sorry. of 85. No problem, no problem. But yeah, it, to me, it's, 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 it's something that only the clash could really have ever done, let alone tried, pulled off. It's a wonderful idea. I can't think of anybody who's really done that since. But what was great about it, of course, as Joe said in the only national interview he gave on that tour, he said the whole point of it was that the person on the stage is just is no more important than the person off the stage. Or as Nick Shepard has said, it was for us, it was more about being in the real world, interacting with people one-on-one. -on -one. And of course, you'll see in the book, there's a quote from a gentleman named Spartacus. Spartacus! <laughs> And uh, I am Spartacus. <laughs> I am Spartacus. <laughs> but it was it was one of many fans that they met on that tour, and he told them point blank. He said, "When we were starving in the winter during the miners' strike, when we were struggling, it looked like we weren't going to win. There wasn't any hope. You guys came that December and played those two nights in Brixton and gave us hope." And as Nick says in the book, you know, if I didn't do anything else in this band, for me, that's enough. That more than justifies the time that I've spent. And so by bringing these things out, we're not only refuting what the official history is supposed to tell you, because, well, what do we learn from the official history of anything, really? But, <laughs> but we're also we're proposing an alternative history that is every bit as valid, if not more so and to give people some guidance and some hope, you know, especially in this whole era of mass-produced music where that whole piecemeal assembly that became Cut the Crap, well, of course, that's how big-time modern pop music is basically done now. So Bernard was strikingly prescient in an odd sort of way, bringing in different people to do different things, and now this guy writes the hook, this guy writes the melody, this guy writes the tagline, and then they clap it all together and get it on the radio and carpet bomb you into insanity by playing it hour after hour after hour on the hour. <sighs> ay, 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 ay. <laughs> so more than ever, some sort of counterforce, some sort of counterweight is needed to balance that out. And so we hope our book plays a part in that, however small that might appear at the time. And Ralph's point, echoing Joe Strummer's point, is that our opinions are not necessarily any more valid than yours. And so, you know, we didn't write this book expecting everyone to agree with us. 
So if you don't agree, then great, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. We'd love to talk about it because um, that's part of it, um, the conversation. Out of the conversation, maybe we can find a way to move forward. So are there questions or comments? Yes, in the back, Flavio. And let's see, where's the mic that you want? Oh, there it is. Here, okay. Thanks so much for doing this book and doing this presentation tonight. I have a question. Um, among the uh, books and movies that are already out there at The Clash, including A Riot of, of Our Own, Fashion is a Passion, um, a documentary of our friend Danny Garcia, The Rise and Fall of The Clash, which ones do you consider your favorite or among one of your favorites uh, and why? Not to compare it with your wonderful book, of course, but just in terms of uh, inspiration, what are your thoughts? Well, well, the first thing I would say is, of course, we our book depends on so much work by so many other people, and that's always the case with art. Um, and so we give we give um, not homage because that seems a little creepy, right? Um, but we show respect. We give props to all of those folks because they're all part of that voice in all oh, those voices in the conversation. Um, having said that, uh, which do I like the best? Um, I I have to think for a moment. Do you have an idea, Ralph? Yeah, I have an idea. Go for it. My personal favorite actually is Route 19 by Marcus Gray, that inside story of the making of London Calling. I mean, he covers everything from the recording to the songwriting to even how the record was packaged. So, And he does the job, but he makes it come alive. I think, now I'm a musician, I play guitar and write songs, but for the non-musician it works just as well. And that's the test of anything like that. That's the first one that probably comes to mind, I'd have to say. And actually, um, the Clash FAQ is a good one, too. I did actually an interview with this guy on my website, so... <laughs> Full disclosure and all that, chairmanrout.com, blah, 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 blah. But uh, that's a good resource, and he gives you a lot of his impressions because he saw them a lot on the UK tour of Spring 1980 and also at Bonds. He actually wrote notes... He kept notes about all the Bond shows, and that's all part of the book. So it's not just like what you see in a documentary, talking head after talking head after talking head and boring and stupid. At least you have somebody, this is a more personal account, you have a little more insight that way. So those are, those are the two that would come to mind, I'd say, right off the bat. Um, I do like The Future is Unwritten. I think it's a beautiful film. Um, um, the Clash books, I think they all have their value. Um, um, I I kind of like Johnny Green's Ride of Our Own because it's kind of prime, right within things. Um, uh, Marcus Gray's book was tremendously important. It was really the first attempt to do a definitive history of The Clash. Uh, we relied on it a lot. Um, some of it we would disagree with, but um, but I think it was, it was very valuable. Um, Next question. Oh, you yeah. want more? Yeah, and, um, oh gosh, now I'm blanking out. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, yeah, Johnny. I'm terribly distracting to stand <laughs> next to you. Because I'm like stepping on you. But no, I would, I, would, I would agree on Johnny Green's book because Johnny Green's is just fun. It gives you a sense of what kind of fun it was to actually be on the road. And of course, he gives you the sense of the dreariness of being on the road. And I spent a week in London talking to Johnny from a public phone booth in the middle of Charing Cross Road. I took it over every day from about three to five interviewing him. So I got a sense of his free-flowing style. I mean, in some ways, the book doesn't quite do it justice. It comes close. Do you know what I mean? But that's, that's certainly another favorite, favorite one. So that works. Well, I think what's interesting about that is that part of why Johnny Green leaves the band, and he leaves it in 1979, shortly after the release of London Calling, is that things are becoming too commercial for him. It's too slick. It's too polished. It's too businesslike. So imagine, for a moment, let's imagine that The Clash actually believed what they said, which is they want revolution, right? But on the other hand, they want to be the biggest band in the world. How do you do that without going crazy? 
seems pretty hard to do. And clearly, Johnny Green was already feeling that. Um, one of the folks who spoke to us, one of the people who's hardly spoken ever over 30 years since he left being part of Clash World, the baker, who was actually their roadie before Johnny Green was there and then was there until shortly after Mick Jones was, was, uh, was fired. He called it the unanswerable dilemma because he knew that the Clash believed what they said. Joe Strummer believed it to his bone. But how do you live it? You aim so high. What happens when you fall short? Are you a fake? Are you a sellout? Good question. I mean, if you really actually care, that's a hard thing to carry. And what Johnny Green's book is suggesting is that that band is carrying it from 1979. No wonder, you know, they maybe lost their mind in 1983 or decided it was time for a whole new approach. Next question. Oh, there we are. Go for it. And I thought somebody over there had one, but I guess he sat down. Okay. I got scared. <laughs> um, I'm very excited to get your book and read it, and I'm going to. Um, one of the most life-changing uh, experiences I ever had was as a very young girl. I went to the All Ages Bond shows. All right. All right. Got pulled on stage by Ray Jordan. <laughs> Met everybody. And then within the same year, which I think was 1981, because um, I lived in New York, somebody told us that they were recording an album at Jimi Hendrix's Electric Lady then. So my friends and I, after high school, would start going down every day. And eventually we were sort of adopted as like little cousins or whatever. But what it means is that when the Cut the Crap tour came, like when they, I mean, they didn't record that at um, Electric Lady Land. But once that tour came, we were kind of around for the East Coast shows. So I haven't read your book yet, but my question is, um, both in talking to Joe and Paul at the time, they had real, there were real questions about the soul of the clash. Like they literally said, and it started before Mick was kicked out. It started when Topper was, you know, when Topper was in the band anymore. There was a real sense of, are we still the, like they would literally talk about like, are we still the clash without Topper? So then when Mick was out, those, those questions became so, I guess my question is, and I'm going to probably find it out when I read your book, which I'm going to do. <laughs> my, my question is, is it possible that um, the clash in the cut the crap era, this era was a force to be reckoned with, like an amazing, powerful, rebellious force. But is it possible that there's really some legitimacy to the idea that it wasn't the clash? It wasn't that clash because that's literally some of the conversations that Joe and Paul had with us was like, you know, we're, we're worried the soul is gone. So. Well, it's a good question. And, and it suggests that they actually really deeply cared about this. And that's, that's our conclusion after, after what we did. Uh, do you want to answer or should I? Yeah, I okay. can, I've thought about, I've thought about this many, many times because going to see them at MSU Auditorium, the fact that it was only two-fourths of the founding firm, so to speak, was not a disincentive. If anything, it was an extra incentive. Because I went with a group of four or five people, all the same age as me in the mid-20s, and we're all wondering, okay, what is this new clash? What do they want? What does it, what's it going to sound like? Are they, still, are they actually going to be able to revive things and turn them in a new direction? And so we left, all I can say is we left that particular night thinking if they can get a fraction of what was up on stage on vinyl, it's going to be a record for the ages. And of course, it should also be pointed out that back in that particular era, people I think had more of a view the band was the band. And so any departure or change was taken very seriously. It was commented on at great length and analyzed. Today, of course, we live in a very different era. We have bands that tour with no original members. We have bands that tour with one original member. We have bands that tour with uh, half the firm, and sometimes one half changes and another half comes in. You know, so it's a very different world that we live in now. And I would say, I would say it's a world that's very informed by what's happening at this particular moment. Because what you're seeing is a sense of commodity capitalism overtaking art. Yeah. And is there art now? Yes, there is! <laughs> In case you were worried. Did I hurt your ears? But let me, let me finish and I'll come back to you. So, um... One thing that has to be said is, and, and Ralph said, 
two, four, so half of the original firm. Of course, Topper Hedden's not part of the original band. Um, actually, it was five at the beginning. Keith Levine, who most of you might know is from Public Image Limited, was a member of The Clash. But beyond that, the most significant early member of The Clash, arguably, is Bernard Rhodes. And this is something that became clear to us when we were doing That's the manager you might have heard of. Um, but he's the guy who has the vision. Now, he links up early with Mick Jones, and that's a critical pairing because Jones has the musical vision that that can make, you know, uh, you know, kind of the radical political vision of Bernard Rhodes into something that's actually going to move people. Um, but Rhodes has to be factored in here. Um, because what I would say is you have three of the four founders in this last version of the band. Is it The Clash? We could argue from now to the end of time about that. But I think actually, um, and, and remind me of your name, the, the, the young woman who gave, oh yeah. What? Joanne. Joanne, because I think we talked over at, uh, we talked at the playground, uh, train park. <laughs> You talked to your train park about this stuff um, with my kids. <laughs> um, uh, poor kids, these kids. Any given day, they hate the clash. <laughs> so what, what's on the What's on the stereo, Dad? What, what do you want to hear? Say anything but the clash. <laughs> Someday, I hope they will love the clash. But uh, hopefully, anyway, back to the front. Back to the front, um, Joanne. I I think the thing is that. If you take the, the position that the clash is this idea and that the people in that are wedded to that idea, that they are there to fulfill that vision, then it's a good question. You know, because Johnny Green seemed like he was questioning at 79, is it the clash as I know it? Um, certainly people continue to question it. Of course you're going to question it because you have made this wager that you are somehow going to have the moral force and the creative persistence to pursue this revolutionary vision while you are doing what? You are engaging in commodity capitalism. I mean, this is one of the funny things. Joe Strummer would attack American corporations, yet you could argue Joe Strummer is an employee of an American corporation, mm. CBS Records. Um, now, I think that's cynical. I think part of what's beautiful about The Clash, in a way, is that, that they are sincere about this. They do want to be the biggest band in the world, and they do want to be this revolutionary force. And that is what leads them, in the end, to try this radical change. And whether you agree with it or not, I think it's important to grapple with the sincerity of the effort. Now, Strummer later on would say it was just ego. I lost my mind. You know, I kicked out my best friend. You know, I, I, I should have been helping Topperhead when he was addicted with heroin instead of kicking him to the curb. And fair enough. You know, these are deep questions anyone can answer, has to answer if you're in, caught in that situation. But the point was that they really were trying to make something that would transcend and actually maybe even challenge this global capitalism, which is, we must say, and this is a position of us in our book, is a bane to our world. Now, I'm not saying that we have all the answers of how to get past that, but that was so great about the clash, including in this time frame, because they were challenging us to ask those questions and not to immediately accept the easy answer, which is, yeah, can't beat them, join them, mm. right? So for me, and this is maybe the best way to answer, it was absolutely the clash because it changed me, just like it changed me when I was a kid, you know, a teenage kid lost in Sheridan County, Montana, and I saw these pictures. This is 1977, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure life is worth living, and I see these pictures as this crazy looking band who seemed to be like given everything to this performance of this song called White Riot. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I want it. I want that passion. I want that look. I never got that look. I'm a total nerd, but they were really cool. But the energy that was there, 
I felt it and, and it changed me again. You know, I was, a, I was, you know, mid-age, middle-aged punk at 25. And, you know, pretty much most of the history that you guys, those of you who know anything about my history, know or care about happened after that. Because, no, it's because of other people, not just a clash. People in this room, in fact, were part of that revolution, if you will, revolution summer, that transformation, the DC punk thing, which is everything to me as well. But part of why my heart was even open to that was because I heard Joe Strummer say, there's got to be something that's more real than this version of success. Next question. Oh, there was a question back here. Oh, my. The dog wants to ask a question. Good. Relevant to what you just said about consumerism and art and replacing. So just as a perfect example, I grew up here and Georgetown used to be every single place was a bar with a live band. Now they've turned it into a consumer place and now they've got tons of empty stores in Georgetown. Buys any of that crap. There's no mix of art and restaurants and all mix in Georgia. I just turned it to stores that, you know, nobody buys anything. So my point is, Georgia used to be a hotbed of live music everywhere, and now it's a desert. Well, and to, to respond to your point, um, all I can say is where I where I come from, it's kind of the same picture because I have friends who are in bands and they complain the same thing. A lot of places, of course, have gone to karaoke, DJs. A lot of bands have just gotten pushed out, and it's for people. I know folks and are streaming. Yeah, streaming a wonderful thing. Yeah, it helps those artists, those starving <laughs> artists. Like, well, actually, it, it kind of hurts. <laughs> yeah, but everybody else, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I hear those complaints back home a lot that live music is not as people complain it's not as meaningful or as important to people, and certainly to the venues, a lot of that stuff has changed drastically. And I know for the folks who are trying to make a living doing it, it's gotten a lot harder, and it wasn't particularly easy to begin with. Indeed. Hi. First of all, thanks for coming out. Oh, I love your buttons. Let's give a round of applause. Buttons. Woo! <laughs> yes. Yes. These buttons are probably older than some people in the audience, okay? <laughs> um, well, first I want to say, Ralph, I wanted to give a shout out to Michigan. I'm home of the MC5 and Iggy Pop Ooh. and the Stooges. I did massive retros on them, too, 94, 95. Ooh. Well worth your time. I'll be happy to send you a Oh, yeah. Um... But I have a question for both of you. Do you feel like there are any bands out now who are kind of carrying the torch that the Clash lit, so to speak, for making positive change? Wow. <laughs> Pete Howard, Pete Howard, who is a drummer in this controversial version of the Clash, and actually he was a drummer at Us Festival too, so I guess even to Rolling Stone, he made it into the Clash albeit briefly, um, uh, argued that basically, the and he's a huge critic of this version of the band. He's like, oh my God, I, I might have had a chance to be in ACDC. I wish I had went to ACDC instead. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not joking. He's very, he's very critical. Wonderful person, great. Uh, seems to be a very nice father. I was interviewing him while he was pushing his youngster around in a... In a, in a stroller um but his point was you know after despite the bitterness from this period because for those of you who haven't read the book the story is not simply a book about great idealism and oh joe strummer and paul simonon and bernard rhodes were like yes we're gonna get back to the to the purity of what it was and and you know triumph again they kind of fall on their face this part of the story um and they fall out with each other in the case of Rhodes and Strummer. But um, back to your question. And your question was, is there someone like this? Peter Howard basically said, okay, I loathe talking about this period because it was like being in the army and I didn't want to be in the fucking army. That's, that's what he said. <laughs> I'm sorry for the children in the audience. I swear. <laughs> My mother would have wished otherwise. 
my better self uses more polite language, but <laughs> I get riled up and just, I don't know, it's in the genes or something. Anyway, back to you. He said, look around. Is there anyone trying to do what we were trying to do then? Even though I kind of wish I'd never been part of it. In truth, we were trying to do something. And even though he, he particularly dislikes Bernard Rhodes, but his feeling was there was something there. We were, we were reaching for it, and, and that's what kept you going through all the chaos that's described in the book, because you felt like, maybe they're right, maybe it is, maybe it's just, just there, I can almost reach it. We can do something that really matters. I don't know. I know that there are people out there trying to do that in many ways. Um, I may be betraying my age by saying that I can't think of anyone right now that's carrying that torch. I can rem name some bands like, you know, that I think have had that elements of that, like Against Me or Anti-Flag or, you know, whomever, but it's, it's kind of a different thing. I, I'm not sure what to say. I hope that doesn't sound depressing. Because the thing is, the, the opportunity is there for any of us right now, however old you are, you know? Grab it by the throat and make it happen, you know, because tell you're dead. There's nothing stopping you. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I'm struggling with naming a band myself because I think I'm as guilty as anybody else. I'm spending a lot of time doing live show archaeology and I'm collecting things like heartbreakers, offshoot bands and things of this nature. Because in all honesty, I think there's even a lot of stuff from that time that I think the world hasn't quite caught up with yet, that never really got its due the first time around. As far as today goes, I'd say maybe I would give perhaps the automatic response. I think there are people probably right now at this very moment in a basement or garage trying to do that very thing. We just haven't heard from them yet. And it's a little more difficult to get heard and get noticed now because, of course, the infrastructure has come apart at the seams and the odds are that much longer. And again, it was never that easy to begin with. It's much more difficult now. So we will have to wait and see what emerges. The Mekons. The Mekons. Yeah. There you go. They're as old as me, though. Come on. They're still. Yeah, I like them. There are people out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, really. You know, I know lots of people here in DC, for example. They still have the old fire. I mean, you know, some of us are distracted by childcare responsibilities. You know, there are more ways to make an imprint on this world than to be in a band or. You know, or it's related to me. Be a loudmouth up on stage, although I'm kind of being a loudmouth here. <laughs> it's pretty much a loudmouth everywhere. It's not true. What's my wife here? Give my wife a round of applause. Yes, right. But hopefully, mostly we speak, you know, most of all with our actions. Because that, I think that's, that's certainly a DC punk ethic for me. You know, people know the song Live the Life. That was a song I didn't know. And, and I learned it here, and I saw it here, more importantly. People doing that, like, live the life, meaning live the life you sing about in your song, or in, in another DC punk song, very important to me. You know, we got to start living, better start living the life that you're talking about. That's, that's how we really speak. Oh, you know, now that jogs me to think of a name. There we are! <laughs> Although it's a veteran, and I mean, Don and I have actually been going to see some of these veteran bands, like the members. Many of them are still, I think, viable and arguably probably better now than they were then. But one that comes to mind is Viv Albertine, who came back into the frame of, what, about 10 years ago, Mark? And I remember I interviewed her for my site, too. But uh, she hadn't played guitar in many, many years, and she was literally reinventing herself from scratch and reinventing her own style. And I thought that was just absolutely heroic. I was glad to see her perspective come back, and I'm glad to see that she's still doing it. So there's that element of it as well. No, and there are absolutely, and, and for those of you who don't know, Viv Albertine from a tremendously important British punk band called The Slits. Yeah. You know, kind of the original feminist punk band, if, if you will, even though they didn't call themselves feminists at the time, they clearly were. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, um, and there's actually a documentary about them, I, I understand. Oh, really? Today, 
which I have not seen, but it's certainly worth checking out because they were they were also visionaries. So I think the, the answer to your question is better put to yourselves. Is there something out there that is touching you like that? It's hard for me, I mean, to, to I can't come up with something partly because I've experienced all these things in a different part of my life that meant everything to me. You know, like the clash. Or like the pan Fukazi. Mm-hmm. You know. That's a mm-hmm. real thing. That's a real thing. No offense to my brother over there. <laughs> well, I'm embarrassing by crying and then pointing him out. <laughs> um, but he's known me for a long time. <laughs> you knows I'm, I don't know, I'm some sort of, I've got a good heart and underneath all that goofiness. So uh, I was lucky enough to see The Clash in September 1979 at the Orpheum Theater in Boston. Oh, cool. and I have to say, almost 40 years later, still the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I mean, really just transcend it. And I did see the uh, their April 1984 Cut the Crap show here at Lisner. Oh, really? What and did you think of it? I'm curious. So I, now I enjoyed it, but it was I, I felt that this was sort of my question. I, I really felt Mick Jones's absence. I felt he, that he brought so much to the to the band, the textures of the band kind of um, as as a foil to strummer, as uh, uh, also a, a strong presence himself, as opposed to just w- w- the nineteen eighty four version is strummer's band. It's it's him alone in in its way to me, at least seeing them live. And I was wondering how you you feel about that because I, I I didn't know coming in the point of view of the book and realize you were focusing on that error and you know how you feel about the band you know, with Jones versus without him yeah. in that sense well I'll, I'll give you a very personal answer to this um and then i'm going to kind of quote another dear friend of mine who may or may not be here if he's here i'd like to embarrass him too but um <laughs> mark jenkins um mark yeah. jenkins was at oh there he is let's give mark jenkins a round of applause he will hate it <laughs> you are in danger you're a friend of mine. You come here. <laughs> anyway, um, let me actually, I'll, I'll give my personal response. I'll just say, I felt like um, Mark's take on that, which we quote extensively in the book in that mm-hmm. part, was very insightful because uh, he was looking at the band kind of, there's an experience of the Clash Live, which is primarily spiritual. And they were an extraordinary live band by <laughs> all accounts. However, by the time they were playing, they're playing Lisner. That's a big place compared to where they played before. Yeah. It was at the Smith Center. Well, you're right. You're right. Smith Center. Sorry. It was at oh, the Smith Center. Right. All the, yeah. they so it's it's like 5,000. Were you there? Did you? Yeah. Right yeah. campus. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'll be curious. Right. I'll be you're curious to hear right. your perspectives on yeah. it because it is they're playing for 5,000 people. Yeah. Um, and um, what Mark said was that he, and Mark's a fan of of Clash, and and a a very insightful, you know, one of the most insightful musical folks I know. Um, And he, I think, enjoyed the experience of the Clash when he'd seen them at, uh, at Ontario Theater and then out at University of Maryland. But musically, they were kind of... They they weren't pulling off their their tremendous music. There were it was too much jumping around, and um, whereas here they were pulling it off, and they were actually projecting in a way to a larger audience, which makes sense to me because I think one of the things that we lose in this musically is that Mick Jones is a musical genius, no doubt about it. However, he's writing these songs, which are actually quite sophisticated in two guitar songs, and. You know, to be fair to Joe Strummer, Joe Strummer is a, a, a wonderful, instinctive rhythm guitar player. But he's also way into the spirit of things. He's often not playing guitar. Mick is trying to, Mick Jones is trying to play um, both parts, kind of, but he can't. He's, he's got all these effects. It's kind of like it's actually the music is being lost. Maybe at the beginning because they're jumping around so much and towards mid to late period with Mick Jones because he's, he's, his style has changed. He's got all these effects now and he's trying to do something very different. And, you know, there's admirable quality to that, but is he succeeding? And that's, I think, the question. I would say, 
listening to a lot of the bootlegs and there's there's like 250 bootlegs of the clash out there it's extraordinary wealth of documentation around the clash one of the greatest gifts that was given to us was when um one person and i'm not sure we should mention his name because i still don't know if you get in trouble for these things but anyway one wonderful person who if you come and talk to me i'll tell you his name um <laughs> um gave us a hard drive with 250 shows on it, like 60, half of the shows that The Clash played during this period. Mm -hmm. Such a tremendous wealth of documents so, so we can judge how they're doing musically. I think they're pretty amazing musically. They start off, I mean, they're very raw and rough. They're intended to be. They're, they're going back to punk rock roots. But as you see them over this period, they're really developing. And there's tremendous potential that I think is squandered in the cut the crap sessions which is a whole subject to talk about right. um the main thing i would say the main thing i would say about cut the crap is that even though i actually like it generally quite a lot it by no means realizes the potential of the songs they had and it does not reflect the actual band that was playing at the time it's really bernard rhodes taking over and attempting something that in its own terms is visionary and and brave so it's in the clash spirit but you can argue about how much it succeeds so that's that would be kind of my answer leaning a little bit on you know my my dear friend who i respect so much mark jenkins i'll give you a personal answer i felt like mick jones was letting me down now it's silly the <laughs> silly to talk about this you know but the bands matter to us i was a kid and i looked up to these folks and then when Mick Jones is, you know, arrested for po cocaine possession, or Mick Jones is doing this foolish thing or that foolish thing, making himself look like Keith Richards. It's like, <laughs> I was a fan of Keith Richards before I listened to you. I forgot about the Rolling Stones because you told me to. Why are you acting like Keith Richards? <laughs> so in my small, silly, fanboy way, I had developed a critique of Mick Jones already. And when he was fired, my, my initial reaction was like, good riddance. Really? <laughs> because I believe, and, and, I, and I'm, saying, I'm, not, I'm saying that with humility, because, you know, what the fuck did I know? <laughs> I'm in Montana. I never, you know, anyway. But the so. point is that, that there's truth to that. I wasn't wrong. That's what Strummer and Simonon and Rhodes are feeling. Like, the guy has lost his mind. <laughs> Now, you can argue they lost their mind, too. Yeah. Fair enough. But it was not wrong for them to attempt to fight back against that creeping rock starism, just like it wasn't wrong for them to say, how can we go on as a band that's allegedly anti-drug, although anti-drug, the clash, it's like a pretty hard thing to put in your mind because <laughs> they're you know the, you know there's the anti-drug song hateful and then there's rudy can't fail beer for breakfast is like what i'm a little confused here um but it made some sense because to them and that's why they mattered so much the idea was so important um so i hope that's a somewhat useful oh, answer well and just I guess to sum it up a bit more briefly, perhaps. <laughs> oh, no, I can because I've already said, based on that night at MSU, we thought, yes, this was the clash. Yeah. And to just go back to your other point, uh, I think it's very important to remember the different times that people come in and love a Absolutely. band and don't. So when the clash came to America in 79, I was 15. I was too young to get into these places that they were playing. Mm -hmm. Same story, 1980. 1982, of course, Combat Rock, they're playing enormous domes of right. plenty. And at that time, I thought, no, I'm allergic to that kind of thing. I don't want to see them in that kind of context. So fast forward to 84. Now, I didn't have the same visceral reaction to Mick Jones's firing that you did, perhaps, Mark, but it was more like curiosity. Okay, out with the old, in with the new. Right. What does the new look like and sound like? So... From the perspective of myself and my friends who went to the show, well, not only is the band starting over, but we're thinking, well, as fans, we might have to start over, too. And like I said, sure. based on that night, we thought there was something there. Thank you. Interesting tidbit. Said, set list says it's at Lisner, but you're absolutely right. I was there, too. You were absolutely right. That's it is, Miss Center, but... Exactly. <laughs> Anybody else who was there want to comment on that show? 
By the way, actually, I do. I, oh, go ahead. You want? Oh, okay. I just remember I went. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, one thing I do have to say is that uh, the, part of what is so beautiful about doing these kind of projects is that people do so much out of love, and they don't do it for money. And and that, to me, that is the seed of revolution, you know, because there's something more important than money. Um, and Mark Jenkins, God, well, I was going to say God bless you, but Mark is an atheist, so... Um, so God, do not bless you, God. Get out of the room. <laughs> but thank you so much. Because Mark, he helped us edit the whole thing. He did it for nothing other than hopefully the chance to read it before anybody else and, and try to make it the kind of book it should be. So seriously, give him a round of applause again, please. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.